Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies. Old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is the premiere episode of our third season, season three, episode one. And today we are going to go deep into space and travel back to 1979 and talk about Ridley Scott's Alien. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz. I am one of your co-hosts and joined by me... Joining me this week, just like each week preceding this week, is my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Maddie, how you doing? Pretty good. How about you? Good. Uh, that's the first time I've messed up the intro and probably messed it up in a way that we're going to leave it in. So, <laughs> Yeah, not the first time the intro has been messed up, but it's been messed up uh, a lot worse a few times. So, Yeah, but that's just a, just a little stumble and can't think of a better way to start our third season excellent yes it's great all right uh so this is alien this is our third season and just a little bit of housekeeping in case you did not stick around all the way to the end of our jurassic park episode we are going to be trying out a new format for the podcast for this season. So the way we're going to be structuring this is the first half of the podcast is going to have all of the normal stuff that you're used to, where we talk about the history of the movie and the time period and our personal history with the movie. And we'll also have a new segment that we're adding into the show. And then we'll have a little break. And at the back half is where everything that would be spoiler tagged would be. And we'll talk about the meat of the movie and the scenes and our reaction and all of the normal stuff. And the reason we're choosing to do this is we, some of the best feedback that we've gotten from the show is when people have reached out and said, hey, we I watched this movie that I wouldn't have otherwise watched if it wasn't for the podcast. And we figured if we could do it this way so that there was a chunk of the podcast that people could listen to before committing to whether or not they wanted to watch the movie, then it might allow more people to decide to watch a movie that they wouldn't otherwise watch. And rather than, you know, you download the podcast on your device and see that it's a movie you haven't seen and maybe a movie that you didn't previously have any interest in seeing and you just delete the podcast. So we're hoping that this will give people a better way to interact with their viewing schedule and also interact with the podcast. And I've also gotten a few comments from people that they've learned things in the front half of the podcast that they wish they had known before they watched the movie. And so we thought if there was a way that we could aid people's initial viewings or rewatches, if it's something that they're rewatching, then that might be a nice thing for us to do. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited about this little change. It is, you know, it, some of our concern early on was it, it can be difficult to try to really avoid talking about spoilers. But I think there's a lot of benefit in this case to making this a little bit more spoiler avoidant in this first half. Uh, we want to get people in and watching films that they wouldn't have watched otherwise. That's really like the biggest compliment we could have on the show is just saying, hey, I watched this and I wouldn't have watched it without listening to the show. That's what I'm really hoping that we get. So hopefully this will it, it make it easier for people to do that. 
Yeah, and what I would say is what we're going to aim for is sort of if you put your own personal spoiler phobe ranking on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is, I don't want to know anything. I Like, if I could choose not to know the title of the movie before I saw it, I would do that. And level 1 is... You know, honestly, I'd rather read a synopsis before I see the movie just so that I know what's going on. I'd say anything seven or below is what we're going to aim for where that's the spot where you really should feel comfortable listening to the front half of the podcast. I would guess that is the way it's going to be for like 90 to 95% of people. Yeah, and that's our hope anyway. I was thinking, you know, along those lines, we're going to try not to spoil anything. But, you know, sometimes it's hard to even talk about a film without discussing a little bit of the premise and things like that. And sometimes there's things that are just minor things in the first act that will just come out naturally in conversation. But it should be that you can sit down and watch the film without having any of the major, most important things spoiled after you watch the first part of the show yeah all right so let's go ahead and move on to the show proper here and let's talk a little bit about personal history with this movie so what's your history with alien so i watched alien for the first time i think seven years ago uh something like that 2014 or 2015 somewhere in that range and are you hmm. what's that I, I'm not sure that's true, but I'll let you finish and then I'll talk about my history and we'll reconstruct okay. from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, this, this is what I remember. It might have been a little bit sooner, like 10 years ago, but it's uh, in. So I watched the movie a few years ago and I had always like seen images and uh, material about alien um as i was growing up and it was always something that intrigued me but never something that i watched when i was growing up and i it was one that i had always wanted to watch and so i was looking forward uh, to being able to watch it at some point and just hadn't really ever got my hands on it and when i finally did watch it it was at my in-laws house uh, and they had the alien dvds for for the films and we were there, and I was up late with uh, with one of my kids, like, not sleeping super good. And so I was mm-hmm. I was up late with the baby. Uh, and I was like, oh, I'm, go- I'm going to put on Alien and watch it um, in, the middle, <laughs> in the middle of the night all by myself, you know, uh, while I'm watching a baby. And I really enjoyed it when I watched it that first time. And it's one of the few times in my life that I've watch something as an adult and become like a major fan of something new um Mm, it's basically for me it's alien and the good place and those are the only two and every other thing uh that i've become like a deep fan about is something that i was familiar with as a kid so i really like this one it is the highest ranked movie that we've watched for the show on my flick chart and uh, I love this one, and it's iconic, and I've gone back to it several times and really kind of delved into the mythos. So that's my personal experience on it. Cool, yeah. I So I, I know exactly when I saw this movie for the first time, and that's because it was a decade ago, and I, it was when Prometheus was coming out, and I 
there was a lot of hype around, I think it was Prometheus, whatever the mm-hmm. um, sequel was in 2012. Yeah, Prometheus. Is and there the was a lot of, there was a lot of hype around that movie. And so I was like, I want to see this movie, but I'm going to watch, I need to like do my homework before I see the movie. And so I think in a weekend, I watched the entire original trilogy. It was, it was within a week of itself. So I watched Alien aliens which i believe is the second one and alien 3 and i really liked alien and then you know this isn't a podcast about the other ones but i didn't like them as much as the original one and then i think i took a little break but then by the time i was gonna go watch the rest of them the reviews sort of started coming in for prometheus and uh then I, I was a little less jazzed to watch the rest of them. So I, n- I never finished it. I've only I've only seen the first three. And the reason I thought you had seen it longer than that was because I was pretty sure you had seen it when I watched it for the first time. And I'm pretty sure we had talked about it, but it's possible I'm misremembering. I think you're right, actually, and I'm just old. Um, <laughs> because uh, I, I think that I was watching it uh, before Prometheus came out mm-hmm. and I was really excited for Prometheus to come out so I think that I had uh, watched Alien before that so yeah I don't know I'm just old and I'm having a hard time remembering but it was it, it was in this time period it must have been uh, it must have been 12 or 12 or 13 years ago I don't know, how old is Ethan now? 13. It must have been when he was just little, so it must have been like 13 years ago that I watched it. Mm. That makes sense, because, yeah, that was... I think that's before we knew each other, and we've just known each other for a long time now. (laughs) (laughs) It's wild, yeah. It's been a long time. So anyway, yeah, I watched it in 2012, and it's a pretty big difference from the... From Jurassic Park, which I had also seen once, but this movie I remembered a lot more of than Jurassic Park. There were still big points of the movie that I did not remember, which was pretty fun, but certainly a lot of the atmosphere and some of the iconic shots I I knew and I remembered. Yeah, it's, this one stuck out in my memory. Um, again, this is one that I've dug, gone back to and I've watched a few times. Like four times, something like that. But additionally, the reason why I tied this to 2014 is in that year there was a game that came out called Alien Isolation um, Mm. that I ended up getting. And I got into that one uh, and I really enjoyed that game. It's one of my favorite games, this survival horror game. And so I got into that game and uh, it really deepened my love for the alien mythos a lot more. So I got really connected with that one, and in one of the parts of the game, there's a DLC that you can play through the iconic events of the movie Alien as well. And so all of those things I've kind of also experienced firsthand from playing it in the in the Alien mm-hmm, video mm-hmm. game, which is I don't know, it's a very it's a very interesting thing. And one of these things about this video game, just a quick aside, is they have this setting where you have your microphone turned in and you can turn it on so the microphone is listening to you and then when it hears noise in you just around you in your microphone, the alien can hear that and then will find you and like come down down and hunt you. So you have to play it quietly if you have that setting turned on. Um, and it's a very stressful, wow, that, scary game. 
that would be so good in as I'm sure listeners have picked up on in my apartment you know it's just like I'm playing the video game and then all of a sudden I die just because a bus went by yeah it sounds wonderful doesn't it (laughs) brutal (laughs) okay let's talk a little bit about the time period here so this is 1979 this is our second movie from the 70s it's very different from the previous movie from the 70s, which was Pete's Dragon in 77. Uh, but it, it it does share some similarities with The Shining, which is just from the year after this. I think probably less than a year The Shining came out. Less than a year after Alien The Shining came out, I believe. Sounds right. But so this year, there, there's a lot of space stuff that happened this year because space was... Uh, the new frontier, you know, we were, there was a lot of stuff happening in that area, Mm -hmm. which is part of where this movie came from. But we have a few things that we wanted to run down that are unrelated to space. So ESPN and C-SPAN both launched this year. Yeah, that's pretty big deal. And that is a pretty big deal. And I wrote this down just because we mentioned it in for... What was our 1959 movie? North by Northwest. We had the first Daytona 500, and this year was the first time that they had aired the Daytona 500 on TV, and it was also the first time they had aired a 500-lap race, and it was instrumental in the rise of NASCAR and the popularity of racing sports. Huh. That's fascinating. A little, a little Easter egg there. Yeah, a little. Uh, we have no stream at crossover, so that was that was the closest I could find. <laughs> and then the last non-space thing I pulled was on July twenty-first. Disco began, or I guess finalized its climb up the charts and dominated the Billboard Top One Hundred. So that week there were. They had the top six tracks they. I mean, Disco isn't a monolith, but the top six tracks were Disco songs or songs with uh, Disco elements, and then they had seven of the top ten tracks. So there were two for Donna Summer, one for Anita Ward, one for Sheik, one for David Houghton, and one for Earth, Wind, and Fire. A sea change in the music industry, if you will. Yes, for sure. For sure. And then my stuff was happy. You you had also some happy stuff that you had pulled. Yeah, well, depressing. Yeah, it's as oh, is okay. as is as I am wont to do. So one of the things that happened just like two months before this film came out, and I think that I pulled it because of thematic connections, was the Three Mile Island disaster, which was a uh, partial meltdown of a nuclear plant and one of the biggest nuclear disasters and. I think the biggest nuclear disaster in on American soil and is kind of cited as this moment where anti-nuclear sentiment started to hit uh, hit its highest point, especially uh, with the release of the film The China Syndrome that came out very soon afterwards that was kind of mm-hmm. um, talking about that. And one of the things that I think ties in with this one is just the the tension that people were feeling at the time period, especially with corporations and their kind of boundless search for energy and things like that. And so 
I think the alien is kind of playing on those things a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other one, this one's actually very good and probably the happiest thing on the entire list, which is the eradication of smallpox happened this year in 1979, which is... Very, very timely. <laughs> yes. And it is one of two diseases that have ever been, uh, that humans have ever sent extinct that infect human beings. And the other one was like a, a small one. And so, you know, the eradication of smallpox is a huge thing and it took 200 years to complete. And it took a concerted effort from, like, basically every country in the world over the course of 40 years. And this was, uh, the it was eradicated in 1979. And then uh, the World Health Organization announced the eradication um, that it was, like, fully completed in 1980, that they had eradicated it the previous year. So that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Yeah, that is a big deal. And then we're just going to send people into space so they can get all these space diseases. Oh, fun. Yes. Wonderful. Oh. All right. So a few space things that I pulled was in, I believe it was February of this year, Pluto moved inside Neptune's orbit for the first time since we were observing them. So the first known time it had Uh, You know, they've been orbiting for a while, so had been there before, but this was the first time humans knew about it. Mm -hmm. On March 4th and 5th, Voyager made its closest approach to Jupiter. It actually made its closest approach to Jupiter on the 5th, but on the 4th, it, it revealed that Jupiter had rings. Which is super cool. And one of the things that's fascinating about Voyager is it was launched two years previously, and so it had taken two years for the spaceship to reach that point. And it's just kind of cool and shows the time lapse that was taking place in that voyage. Yeah, so the, uh, just to tie it together, they launched it during Pete's Dragon. And then it got there during Alien. Yep. Yeah. And then March 25th, the first space shuttle orbiter was delivered to the Kennedy Space Center. And although it wouldn't end up launching until 1981 and then in the space science fiction media world in october hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy was first published over in the uk excellent yeah great books and then the only other thing that i wanted to talk about was one of the things i was thinking as i was watching this movie which takes place in space and i think both Somewhat obviously, if you watch the movie, and also Ridley Scott has talked about it as a huge influence, owes a lot to Star Wars, is I was really curious, like, how much spaceships had been shot, how much shots in space had had happened on film. And so, but in my research, it really turns out not a lot, or at least not a lot in films that we've heard about and we still watch today. So in 1968, there was 2001 A Space Odyssey. And then in 1977, there was Star Wars. And then May 25th, 1979, Alien was released. But this year, there was a lot because there was also Moonraker on June 29th, 1979, which takes place in space and has a lot of space shots. But I don't it's been a while since I saw the movie, but I don't think there's a lot of like 
spaceship shots in the same way there is for this movie. And then <laughs> in December of this year, the Star Trek motion picture was released, which I have not seen, so I'm not 100% sure how spaceshipy it is. I can't remember very well. I think I'm, I may have seen that one, but not well enough to remember the shots. Uh, I do, yeah. I have seen some, like, some of the older films that have depicted, like, space adventures or whatever, some shorts and serials and things like that, and it's just so different when you're looking at things that are older than, you know, <laughs> Star uh, 2001 Star Wars and Alien, because, uh, you, you know, you just have these sets that are built on sound stages that are obviously built on sound stages, and you just have people, you know, people coming out in, like, uh, bright or kind of like weird costumes that are obviously a person like wearing a costume and the aim for realism isn't really there and there wasn't a really a lot of change in the way that people depicted space or spaceships up until that time period and this is why when these shots and they're just shooting these big spaceships and showing them those shots were so iconic and they impacted so much people in the theater because you didn't have those same kind of images at the time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say about 1979, or should we move on to personnel and stats? Let's go to personnel and stats. All right. So uh, Alien was the number six movie this year. So Kramer versus Kramer was number one. And then the Amityville Horror was number two. Rocky Two was number three. Apocalypse Now was four. And then Star Trek The Motion Picture edged it out by looks like just like one and a half million so it had a 11 million dollar budget and got an 106.3 million box office which is pretty astounding i guess that's all time so this year it only did 80 million only did 80 million in box office so the only what is that uh eightfold increased their investment eightfold yeah a huge huge uh, box office success just this is one of those that's you know just blows the blows the money out of the water and uh, was a tremendous success spawning so many sequels afterwards yeah i i really could not believe when i was researching the development of this movie how little resources went into it like i think they shot the movie in only 16 weeks 16 or 18 weeks it was basically like an indie film <laughs> like it was released in a uh, seattle film festival before it got a wider release three or four years th three or four years three or four weeks later yeah and that, that was a little bit more common at the time period but still it is like the budget was really small in comparison like for example apocalypse now which also came out that year the budget was like three and a half times as large as the budget of alien so and made about the same amount of money so and this is you know pretty normal for horror films when horror films mm -hmm. you know come in with these budgets that are usually a little bit lower and then have a really good return on investment and this is why you know a lot of studios will just make horror films because you know you can always get your money back on them Ooh, let's produce a horror film yeah that sounds wonderful so the first person that we wanted to talk about here is the director, Ridley Scott. So this was, Ridley Scott has had a very accomplished career. He now has 27 total feature films and 
con- is continuing to direct. He had, I think, two films released last year. But Alien was only his second film ever. So in 1977, he had The Duelists. And then in 1979 was Alien. And then I'll just run down some of his biggest movies from then till now. In 1982, Blade Runner. 1985, Legend. 1991, Thelma and Louise. And then back to back, 2000, and ha- he had Gladiator. And then 2001, Black Hawk Down. And then The Martian in 2015. Yeah, and then there's also just the other two. He had two that came out in 2021, and I think both of those are still currently running in some theaters, which are The Last mm-hmm. Duel and House of Gucci. So, you know, very accomplished director that's had a lot of really big acclaimed hits over time. Yeah, did you... Did you see either of his films that, from last year? Uh, no, I haven't watched them. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of his other films, all the you know alien-related ones, and I've seen The Martian. Mm-hmm. I've seen Robin Hood. Uh, I've seen Kingdom of Heaven, a bunch of the uh, Gladiator, uh, G.I. Jane, um, Blade Runner, and Alien. So I've seen a bunch of those films. You've done well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love Alien, Blade Runner, and Kingdom of Heaven. Those are some of my most favorite films. I uh, love them so much. I, I gotta say, in general, I find Ridley Scott usually finds his way onto the list of, like, best directors of all time. And his he has a very strong cult following, especially around the films Alien and Blade Runner, uh, which are mm-hmm. just so well-beloved and all of those things. But I've generally found that with, outside of... that handful of very high points that I'm generally let down by Ridley Scott films uh, and I don't actually like them all that much if that makes sense yeah it does make sense I don't have a ton of experience with his films but it it kind of makes sense based on this movie that if it's not a subject that you're interested in or not a type of film you're sort of predisposed to like i think it's you could understand how you might find his directorial style a little cold or a little yeah i guess cold is a good word it it doesn't have a ton of warmth to it yeah for sure and he is a very hands-on director especially with the cinematography his films all have a very similar feel and sometimes for me it doesn't fit well with what the film is actually doing mm-hmm. so yeah. who well, who else did you have that you wanted to talk about yeah so you know this little known actress at the time it like basically her first role she was coming from yeah. uh the stage at the time period but it is sigourney weaver one of the most acclaimed actresses of all time Winning just so many awards, you know, been nominated for basically everything uh, and has shown up in many incredible films over a long period of time. And uh, one of my favorite actors, I I love Sigourney, Sigourney Weaver, and she is among my favorite people. One of the very few people that if I see that she's in something, I'm very likely to go see it. Yeah, it's, it's so funny because of when... I saw this film in 2012. I didn't even realize until I was researching, maybe this means I shouldn't have a film podcast, but I didn't even realize until 
I was researching for this podcast how many movies I had seen her in before before this one when I just didn't I was too young to piece together who yeah that like actresses were <laughs> the same people you know yeah for sure it's a I I love her so much and she's so uh, she's just one of the best parts of everything that she's in you know she's uh, she's in this one she's also well known for being in Ghostbusters uh, which is mm-hmm. another just you know great film and her part in that one that she is just phenomenal. She did uh, all these alien films, a whole bunch of those, and then she's also in Galaxy Quest, phenomenal film that everybody should watch. Another like science fiction classic, but it's a comedy. Uh, but oh, she, and she is just iconic in that film. It also has Alan Rickman in it, and the two of them just deliver like some of the best performances of their careers in that film, despite being this weird, stupid, satirical comedy. And I don't know, she's just in so many other things that I love. Yeah, and I didn't realize she was in, I probably everyone else in the world knew this, but I didn't realize she was in Avatar as well, because I haven't watched it again since it came out. That is one of the one of the iconic roles that she has that she's very well known for. So it makes sense. <laughs> I know now. Yeah, there you go. So one of the things that I love about Sigourney Weaver, it's, uh, you know, this is early on in her, her career, but the kinds of roles that she plays, she just plays women that are just so complex. And she often gets cited as one of the people that popularized the strong woman archetype. Um, and, you know, people will look back at Ellen Ripley. But what I love about Ellen Ripley is the character that she plays and so many other of the roles that she's done is not just that she is playing a character that is hard and tough and not just that she's playing like an action hero, things like that. But I love the nuance and just character driven stories that she does and the performances that she has she brings so much life to them and i just love sigourney weaver performances she is an absolute icon one of my favorite actors of all time yeah we're gonna get into the nuance of her performance for this movie because i think there's a lot i don't think this is an easy role at all i think it's actually a really difficult role i don't think there's a lot of concrete stuff that she's given to work with and she makes a lot out of, I don't want to say very little because there's obviously a lot of meat to this movie, but I think it would be very easy for a lesser actress to have their performance fall flat in this film. For sure. And to do it as basically your film debut is is really just astonishing to me. There's not a ton of dialogue in the film. No, and there's so not. It, and the... The so much of the other shots that are in the film are you know heavily shadowed or you know there's a lot going on with them and so the moments that she has to perform she has to make so much out of them and her the choices that she makes just every single time are are so good and so thoughtful and clever and nuanced that I I think she makes this show and it, it's funny that she is you know the newcomer because she's just the best thing about the uh, about the movie yeah absolutely who else did you have that you wanted to talk about so the other really big important person from this one that i wanted to spend a little bit of time with is this guy named hr geiger 
And H.R. Geiger is one of the most important people involved in this film. And he was a Swiss artist that, you know, was known for doing like biomechanical paintings and just a lot of weird sci-fi horror paintings and things like that. And they brought him in to do the, the art design for Alien, the, the alien, the creature. Mm-hmm. And he was brought in and did a lot of this early work. And he had this painting, the Necronom 4, that uh, was the inspiration for the alien. And then the studio fired him from the project because they were like, oh, this no. guy is weird <laughs> and creepy. And like, there's like sexual stuff and, and like horror stuff combined. And, you know, all the all the like fundamentalists are going to get on our back really bad about this one. So they fired him. And then when Ridley Scott came in and was working on it, he was like, listen, we got to go back and hire this guy. So they went back and hired him and brought him back to do all the designs. It's a good call because this movie is just made to be popular with the fundamentalists. It is. <laughs> right? Exactly. They should be showing it in church every Sunday. Uh, right. Yeah. It's a woo. Uh, so it's uh, the decision to bring H.R. Geiger back, I think, is the most important decision that uh, Ridley Scott made on the film. Mm-hmm. And when when you look back at the history of this film being made, the combination of Ridley Scott, Dan O'Bannon, and H.R. Geiger is the engine that drives the story. And it's the three of them kind of bouncing ideas off of each other and synergizing their ideas that makes this film into what it is. He designs the alien, and he designs the space jockey and the ship that's there. And his it is so iconic. And this... It, this film just would not work without the the art style that's put into this these creatures. Yeah, you mentioned a third name there, Dan O'Bannon. Dan O'Bannon is the writer of the film, the the guy that wrote the story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot to say about him, but you know, it's an important creative force behind the film. Well, it is because the he the story came from him, and one of the things that I had seen in the development for the film that really spoke to me was they the, the story idea for him was they wanted to do jaws in space they wanted it to feel like jaws but be a space movie yeah it's though it's interesting with dan o'bannon because there were a lot of like he was working on a lot of science fiction projects before this film came out and people just kind of didn't take him seriously he was mm-hmm. the kind of writer that was a little bit ahead of his time um and this film got like purchased and then he worked with Geiger to develop some of the ideas and then they got dropped and then kind of went into uh, development hell for a little while until Ridley Scott kind of found it and pulled it out and resurrected the film and all those kinds of things. But the whole time he really stuck with it and he stuck with H.R. Geiger. And because of that, this idea was gestating for a really long time and developed into some really like fascinating, interesting ideas. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. And then the last two people, we don't have to spend a ton of time on them, but we did want to mention the composer, Jerry Goldsmith, only because he's one of the most acclaimed composers of all time. And so some of his other movies that we had jotted down, he had A Patch of Blue, Chinatown, Logan's Run, Rudy, and The Mummy. And I think his score here is very effective. It's We talked last week about John Williams and his use of 
you say light motifs. I've always said lay motifs, but I don't actually know how it's pronounced. Me either. And the this this score could not be any more different from that. I don't I listened to the soundtrack a couple of times today and I couldn't pick out any themes from from the score and I couldn't hum any of it to you now, but I really enjoyed listening to it and most importantly I feel like it adds atmosphere and it adds texture to the film in a way that's basically perfect and it it, as you said there's not a ton of dialogue in this movie so it's really relying on the textures from the score to create sort of an aural world yes and it's so subtle the way that the score is used in this film it's one of you know one of my favorite scores ever i can like name i i can kind of hum the themes and things like that but Mm -hmm. it it's only because i'm it's used so much in these other alien films and throughout the alien isolation game and so when you've sat down and played a game for 40 hours and that uh, that score is playing in the background it's just gonna pop into your mind so easily if that makes sense yeah it does so and is one of the things that's interesting about him is he's one of the one of only only five composers on the american film institute's list of the 25 greatest film scores he's one of only five people who has two films on the list with chinatown and planet Mm -hmm. of the apes and he had seven other films that were nominated for the list that made their short list. So, you know. But Alien didn't make it. Alien didn't make it. No, it's a, it's, or neither did Star Trek The Motion Picture. So, you know, but great, That's great, right, yeah. great scores. He did, he did two of the three space movies this year. One of the things that I find interesting about Jerry Goldsmith as well is that his scores are, I've listened to a few, a lot of films that have his scores and the, the ones that are horror films have a similar kind of textural quality to them. But I, I remember watching Rudy, it's a sports film and the score is so much different and feels so different because it feels so like every man and it, you know, just like triumphant and it, it's just a lot different than this one. Who was the last person that you wanted to chat about? So the last one is the cinematographer on, on this film. Derek Van Lind. This film is is one of the most iconic films in cinematographer history, and it's just got an incredible amount of shots. So he is also famous for doing... Uh, he did this film, and he did X-Men. And, and what else? That's that's the... Uh, well, there's two more on the list, Dragon Slayer and The Spreading Ground, but that's, that's pretty mm, much I it. Uh, Alien and X-Men, you know, two important genre-defining films. And, you know, that's the films he's done. But, you know, there's a, there's a but on this. He is known for oh. doing a lot of iconic commercials and some of the most iconic commercials mm. of all time. And he is he is one of the most sought after, was one of the most sought after uh, television commercial cinematographers ever. So Yeah, pretty cool. Alien, so Alien and X-Men are, what, 24 years apart? Yep. 23 years apart, because I think X-Men is 2002. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I'll I guess I'll go back and do another movie two decades later. Right. I just uh, I think it was done as a personal favor to somebody that was on there. They were like, hey, come do this mm-hmm. one. And he's like, OK, fine. Goes and does X-Men. And like that film has incredible cin- cinematography. And, you know, yeah. he, he does such good work. And this the this is often cited as one of the best the films with the best individual camera work of all time. 
Alien. And it's got so many uh, great, great shots from like individual camera work besides all the lighting and all of those things. The, the one thing to add on this, though, is that Ridley Scott is very involved in cinematography and everything that he does. So there's kind of two cinematographers on this film. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have our first time for our new segment. So for this segment, this is going to be just a little space where if there's anything that we haven't covered in the previous part of the show that we think would aid someone in their initial viewing of the movie, just maybe it's a lens to watch something through. Maybe it's a bit of contextual history or maybe it's just an idea to get you in the right mind frame for the movie this is where we will share that idea so and we might not have something for every movie but we figured if we're going to take the break we may as well give people a a little something to chew on before they go in so did you have anything that you wanted to talk about or recommend here manny yeah so the the biggest thing for me is this alien is often cited as one of the scariest films ever and it is a horror film it's there's a few moments that are have some big jump scares and it is scary but it's also not terrifying in the same way as like a slasher film and a mm-hmm. lot of the the horror in this film is kind of more psychological and it's not some of it's a little bit unsettling and feels strange, but it's not in the same realm as something like The Exorcist. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So, you know, go into this one with some, you know, you're going to be watching something that's a little bit scary. Honestly, the first time that I watched it, it was late at night and I was all alone and it really enhanced the viewing. I I recommend watching it in that way because whew, it'll be a lot scarier if you do it that way. But if you're a person that has a hard time with horror movies, you'll want to think about that. But it's one that's definitely worth watching. And there's a lot of psychological kind of and uh, philosophical stuff that's happening in the film. Yeah. And then my, I'm curious what you think about this, Maddie. Tell me if you agree or disagree. But I would say that this movie has... It has a very specific pace and it has a very specific feeling to the movie and one of the great things about it is the opening maybe six or seven minutes is really going to set the tone for the entire movie so I would say if you watch that initial six or seven minutes you will know whether the settings for the movie for you so just like than like how dark it is in the room and how your sound is calibrated and how many distractions you have, whether it's something that you're going to be able to focus on for that period of time. But it's also something where you'll know whether or not you're in the right frame of mind for this movie because you'll get a sense for how much attention it's requiring from you. And I would say if you are not feeling it after the first six or seven minutes of the movie, probably I'd recommend turn it off and come back at a time where you know that you're in the mood for something like this. Yeah, it's a, it's, this is, I agree with this a hundred percent. It's not one that's just a, like a fun little jaunt that you can just, you know, pop some popcorn uh, and watch it while you're playing on your phone or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you, you, 
and as you watch this, as you said, that those first few minutes, you're going to get a real feel for the pace of the film. And it's going to be, it takes its time and it's very deliberate. And it's, there's a lot of ambiance and texture to the film. So you'll know if that's what you're going for in, in those first few minutes of the film. Yeah. And I would say if you watch it and you're like, this isn't the type of movie for me, I'm never going to be in this mood. I would recommend that you do try and push, like find a time that's going to be optimal for you and try and push through because I do think it is worth it. And it's not a particularly long film. I think it comes in at under two hours, but it it is going to require brain space from you. Yeah. And once you get about 30 minutes into the film, it really goes fast from there as well. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, the one other thing that I'd add, this is not like a, a big philosophical thing, but one thing that I had to explain to Ethan as we were watching is the idea of like traveling through space in relativity and mm-hmm. the idea of like a cryosleep. So you have this spaceship that's traveling for a long period of time and just understanding that the, the time, like the lengths of time that are involved with this is, is worth understanding. You know, they're a ship, the, the place where they're at is 39 light years from earth right so their ship's been traveling that they are the ship has traveled for years with them frozen in sleep and so understanding that point of view and like the distances that are involved this is dealing with the the distances in a hard science way rather than something like star wars where you can just zip across the whole universe in like seconds is valuable i think to understanding the film yep Absolutely. So we are going to take a break and we will be back with our reaction and breakdown of everything. See you after the break. All right. Welcome back from our first ever Stream It break. Maddie, how did you find this movie this time watching it? I really enjoyed watching this this time. It was a very different experience for me watching this time. I sat down and watched it with Ethan, and then Lori was watching it with me as well. And mm-hmm. they were just in a mood this time. You know how some people just are in a mood when they're watching something, and they had a lot of commentary. And oh, yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. So it would have been a really bad first viewing for me, but since I've seen this plenty of times, uh, it was totally fine for me. But their commentary was like reacting to what was in the screen, and I found it fascinating listening to them as you know as they were talking about stuff and they're asking questions about like what is that thing, what's going on there, um, all of that kind of stuff. And just Ethan was really interested in the engineering and physics and science of it. And so mm-hmm. that was kind of cool to see him get involved with that. And it was it was a really fun experience to watch it with them. And I don't know if I've had as much fun watching Alien as I did this time. Every other time it's been like a moving kind of like intellectual philosophical time. And this time it was like, it was a fun like bouncing off the walls kind of experience watching the film. Yeah, in some ways, that's kind of like the greatest gift you can get if the people you're watching with don't mind, you know, that they're talking through it or whatever, if that's what they want to do, because you really get the experience of someone else watching it for the first time. And that's something we try and talk about on the show and uncover. But if it's not our first time viewing it, it always is a little tricky just to remember, like, 
how does this hit you if it's your first time watching it? For sure. It made it a lot easier to watch it without thinking about podcasting about it as well. Because I was hearing their reactions in the moment and they were just, you know, reacting in real time to all the things that you're supposed to react to. Uh, And so it was like I got a a bit emotionally involved in watching them watch it. Yeah. Cool. And then my so I I sent a a picture of you. I found I found it so scary this time. (laughs) I like I the suspenseful parts. I was just like. Oh my god! I was like hiding behind a pillow, and I sent you a picture of it. I'll I'll put it in the show notes if I remember. But I I really enjoyed it, and the what was wild to me was it's only been ten years since I've seen this movie, but I completely forgot about the twist with Ash at the end, and it worked on me the same way it did this time as it did the first time I watched it where they start laying the breadcrumbs and it's clear there's something else going on. And my brain was just like, there is no, like there's no way this twist can be satisfying. I don't understand what they're building to. And then all of a sudden it was just like, oh, he's a, he's a robot. Like I didn't even know we were in that world. But then my brain is like, oh, but of course we're in that world because uh we have (laughs) we can travel light years in space yeah and it's a it's ian holmes performance in this film is so Mm -hmm. good and uh, ian holm the actor that plays ash who is the the science officer on the ship and is an android he also plays um bilbo baggins in the in the lord of the rings films so Mm -hmm. um you know, just an iconic actor, and uh, he is really just tremendous in this role. And th- that moment where they clobber him, and the the like juice starts pr- spraying out from him. Yeah, oh, that that took me really by surprise when I saw it. Uh, when my family was watching it, uh, Lori kind of picked up on it as it uh, was going. About three minutes before the reveal. She's like, is that's that guy's a robot, isn't he? And then you know, uh, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and then it's right before he he attacks Ridley and does all of that. So it made that scene really interesting uh, watching it with them. Yeah, I think one of the things that's so interesting is having, in retrospect, having that knowledge makes a lot of the things that are can be stumbling blocks for your first time viewing this movie, it actually alleviates all of them. You just don't know. If you're watching it for the first time, you don't know until that reveal because there's a lot of, why are they, like, why are they stopping here? Why are they getting out? Why are they doing all of this? Why are they letting them into the ship? And you, like, it just all seems so stupid because it is stupid, but it's also, there's, a reason for it it's because they're being manipulated by this robot who's working for the government or whatever it is yeah i mean it's not even a government it's a massive corporation the wayland yutani massive corporation yeah, yeah. the wayland yutani corporation and they're just extreme capitalists what they you know their goal they've got 20 million tons of ore on the ship 
and just thinking about 20 million tons of ore and how valuable that is and like this is their thing is they just transport stuff and they gather all these materials and they're just extracting resources from every planet they can find and just stripping them from everything that they have in order to build like fleets of ships and all of that kind of stuff and they form kind of this quasi-government but on top of it they're willing to sacrifice all of that in order to get this alien specimen because it's so economically valuable to them primarily for the purpose of making weapons um yeah and the way that these people are sacrificed on the altar of capitalism in the way that ash represents that that he you know the money is so much more than he's you know they he and the computer have made a calculation of the value of the crew's lives and it pales in comparison to the money they can make from this alien and so they're willing to sacrifice everybody on the crew to get this specimen back yeah Oof. and th- those are layers that like i don't think i caught it on my first watch through and honestly i didn't catch it on this watch through either it wasn't until i was going back and re-watching the scenes for the podcast that i realized it was all layered in there which i think is one of the things that helps make the movie so successful because there's additional layers to grab on rewatch yes these things are there in the first film and you can find them but you have to really kind of dig for them but where i've seen a lot of the wayland yutani stuff is in all of the additional media that is made in the Mm. alien franchise especially some of these there are these short films, alien films, and they're some of my favorite things ever, but uh, they were released on the, what is it, the 40th anniversary, I think, in 2019. And it's just a series of like six short films. And the Wayland yutani Corporation is uh, integral in all of them. And they are, for me, out of all the things that have been made in the Alien franchise, the, the best spiritual successors to this first original film. What's the what's the first scene that we're going to talk about here? So the first scene is this opening scene. And it, it's not just the opening scene that I want to talk about, but the opening with, like, the title sequence as well. So the title sequence yeah. into this opening scene. And it's got one of the most iconic uh, title sequences of all time where it starts with, like, a line here, a line there, and it gradually builds the, the word alien as the camera is mm-hmm. panning across this big empty space and then like a planet that it's showing and this landscape shot that it's that it's doing as it pans across it's just so i don't know it's one of my favorite depictions of space in a film and it takes its time the the way that this title goes and is such a good way to demonstrate what this film is going to be doing that the pieces are coming together just slowly one at a time of these letters and then you see what's coming up this word alien is coming and you can kind of figure it out and then the pieces come into place i think the film is doing that as well throughout the rest so i think it's iconic and emblematic of what's going to happen yeah i didn't put together that reading of the reveal of the title being sort of similar to the reveal of the alien but i like that a lot and then or the way that not the reveal of the alien but the way it's sort of meted out through the course of the movie right it is so slow and deliberate in the way that it gives you information and um Mm -hmm. uh that's one of the things that i love so much about this film and the title sequence is giving it to you right there that that's what's going to be happening with such a beautiful space shot that's going on behind it it's just 
it's a it's one of those things that just makes me fall in love with space i love it so much (laughs) so the other thing that i love about this shot or, or about this opening scene is we then move into the spaceship and well, we do, for, before we do that, we get this iconic spaceship shot as it's so sh- showing the Nostromo. And it comes from uh, underneath of it and then kind of goes with the similar shot to what happens in Star Wars with the Star Destroyer. And it's showing the length of the Star Destroyer. What I love about this shot is you're getting a very different kind of spaceship. Uh, they describe this one as being like a space truck. It's this huge, ungainly, just ugly it's an ugly spaceship (laughs) it's so ugly like and it because it's hauling you know 20 million tons of ore and it's a huge spaceship with such a small crew but just thinking about like this is designed just to carry so many materials and uh, with just a minimal amount of people that are involved and the scale of these things and the tininess of the characters compared to the size of the things that like you see this huge planet and you see this spaceship up against it that's kind of in relief and this the size of these things really impacts you compared to the size of a tiny speck of a human being that's going to show up in the in the ship later on Mm -hmm. and i think the this shot and its homage and inspiration from star wars i think it just has to be the like, I think it was so deliberate, and I think it was assumed that people would make that connection at this time. I think so, yeah. You kind of had to because it was so close. But it has enough differences that I think that if you're watching at that time, you think, okay, this is similar to Star Wars, but Star Wars had this kind of romanticized look of a ship that looked almost like a battleship from that you might see nowadays. Something that, that has kind of this elegant science fiction view but looks like you know something that might be a little bit majestic whereas this ship that is showing in alien does not look like that it doesn't look heroic it doesn't look majestic um it just looks like a big truck so well i wonder if i wonder if you're even supposed to maybe pick up on those differences and it is saying this is not a heroic or a romantic movie. Yeah, I think so. This is, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's part of the purpose of this one. Like, listen, this is just a utilitarian thing, and it's ugly because this is what would work to transport so many materials. So deal with it. Like, uh, you're not getting a pretty romanticized story here. Yeah, it's also contrasted in how much smaller the story is. Like, Star Wars is an entire galaxy. Mm -hmm. You can travel anywhere and as fast as you want. And there's a million characters and a million different races that you're not even going to learn the names of in the movie. But Alien is just seven people. It's seven people and an alien and a cat. And it's essentially a bottle movie, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it is, especially the last half of the film. And this is one of the things that that Ridley Scott talks about with the film is they wanted to start off the film in the beginning, like the first 40 minutes of the show, something like that, with these, like a lot of these landscapes and these big shots of the ship uh, and then going into the ship and establishing the space. And then when they go to the planet, they have like the the big space jockey ship, all these things, a lot of big things that are shot with very wide cameras and very wide angles. 
And then when they bring those same things into the ship later on, all of a sudden it goes from feeling more expansive to feeling incredibly claustrophobic. Mm. And it's it's a clever way to use the cinematography to get about that storytelling. Yeah, to match the cinematography to the narrative. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so one of the things that it does, it then goes into the ship and they keep the wide lens which is not what you would normally expect shooting in a small enclosed interior like this. Normally you would want to use a smaller lens because you're in a small space. But the idea was that using the big lens in the small space would make it feel so much smaller and claustrophobic. Like like the space is not big enough to fit what it is that you're doing there. Yeah, and it, the so I wrote down timestamps of basically this opening six minutes, almost seven minutes. So it's going to be the first dialogue, and I put dialogue in quotes because it's not really dialogue as we recognize it, but that's not going to come until six minutes and 45 seconds into the runtime of the movie. So that's a long time. Where we've, gotten, where we've gotten to now, the um, like the first slide that tells you where you are tells you the Nostromo. The, so that happens at two minutes. So the whole title crawl and credits is about two minutes. Yeah. That's, that's, and then, it's a lot to do that. It's long. Yeah. And then that information happens in about 30 seconds. So telling you where the ship is and giving you some, I think it tells you also how many people are on the ship yes, as well. Yes, it does. So that takes about 30 seconds. And then at two minutes and 30 seconds is when we'll start these interior shots of the spaceship. Yeah, and the interior shots are the the, the part that I really love the most about this. Um, and mm-hmm. the camera is coming across. So the other thing that they're doing with the camera is the camera never stops moving, which is kind of a fascinating thing. It's always – so you'll come around a corner, and it's just like it's sliding off to the side as you're seeing things. And it gives this unsettling view. It's sort of like when you play – I, I thought about it with Mario. So you have the Mario levels where the camera just kind of moves with you and they feel mm-hmm. kind of, you know, like you can take your pace and things like that. And you can't really move back on the original Marios, but the, it's not pushing you forward. And then you have the ones where it's continually going forward and it just feels so much more claustrophobic and so much more urgent. And so this film is moving slowly, but the camera is constantly moving through all of these shots and so it gives it this unsettling view like i can't stay in one spot for any moment well and in addition to that there's also everything in the shots are stationary with the exception of i think maybe every shot or the majority of shots have just one little element that's moving yes either the one of them, I think, is just like a cosmetic statue. And then another one, it looks like it's something on the dashboard of the the bridge of the ship, maybe. Or not 100% sure. They don't really ever tell you. Yeah. Maybe maybe you know. Maybe it's in some of the expanded universe stuff. Uh, this, yeah, there's, there's some... There is this kind of information you can find, but and this was another deliberate choice that they made to have one thing moving in basically every every shot. In one of the shots is the doors that open, and it, another mm-hmm. one there's these two like birds that are like yeah the birds yeah that are one, pecking yeah. back and forth, and then there's another one where there's a, a some papers that are flapping, and it's one of those things that like where's the wind coming from in the ship? 
Like, <laughs> did, did they did they leave on the AC? Um, but it gives the it's coming from the birds. Yeah, exactly. So, but it gives it this feeling of movement, even though you haven't seen a person yet, and you're seeing these things that are clearly connected to people. And you know people put them there because it's just like random stuff that's on the ship, but you don't see any people. And so it gives it this unsettling edge. Like, are all the people dead already? What's going on here? Why isn't there anyone doing any of these jobs or why isn't anyone moving around in this area? And But there's papers flapping in this wind and it's very unsettling, but... This is just one of my favorite things about the entire film is the way this shot takes its time to go through the ship before it arrives at the humans. Yeah, I think it's such a brave opening for a movie. And you compare it to, like, I don't think it's even just brave from, like, a modern standpoint. Like, I think it's a very different type of opening than Jaws is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or like Star Wars, you yeah. think of that, it has the ship come in, but then immediately there's blaster fire, and you jump into the ship, and there's yeah. people running around shooting at each other, and you're right into the action, and this one just does the exact opposite. Yeah, so at 4 minutes and 15 seconds is when the alert comes in that we will later learn is going to wake up the pods, and I think that's just there to say, hey, there are going to be... It, it's a plant to say, hey, you have to be worried about some jump scares in this movie because it happens with a loud sound. And if it's not anything scary, but it is jarring after the, you know, initial four minutes we've had of this. That movie. have been almost silent except for the score playing just very subtly and texturally in the background. Yeah. The other thing that I find fascinating is all the stuff that's on the ship is all just stuff that's from Earth. Like they have coffee filters. And they have, mm. there's like a, there's a coffee machine in the back that's like a brand that you can get on Earth. And you have those birds pecking and things like that. Uh, which gives you another sense that these are, like it's been traveling a long ways. And it's been, it's just been around the block. But it's people from our Earth that are traveling on the ship. Yeah. And then at 5 minutes and 33 seconds is when the pods start to open. And it's like, oh, there's the people. They're all asleep. But it's going to be another full 60 seconds of watching people wake up yeah. from the pods before it even, it crossfades to their dining, dining room scene yeah. where they're talking. But even then, if you think you're going to get a release and get some dialogue that tells you somewhere plants you in a world where you're like following dialogue and interested in what people saying what people are saying it's not really going to come because it's really just uh i don't even want to say world building dialogue it's atmosphere building dialogue yeah it definitely is uh you have the the engineers that are talking about getting bonuses um uh but you don't really know much about what that is or what's going on with it and they're they're waking up and so they're like oh look we're seeing everybody you know this is kind of fun and you know they're just they're obviously familiar with each other but they're also obviously co-workers and you see this dynamic uh with the co-workers where some of them have a little bit more power than the others but you you don't you also get the sense they don't know exactly why they've woken up and 
mm-hmm. there's something going on and they're just not seeing it. So the levity is kind of uh, this creates this tension. Yeah, and it wasn't until I was rewatching that I connected the idea. I actually ha- had written down in my notes the import, import of the socioeconomic difference between the mechanics and the rest of the crew and them arguing over bonuses and who is going to get paid for what. But connecting that disparity with the overarching idea that it was basically a capitalist venture that put this entire ship at risk and killed six-sevenths of the crew. Yeah, uh, for sure. And the the power dynamic that you see between them is really interesting. You know, it's the the guy that's arguing for the bonuses and wants to wants to get the bonuses and is obviously at a power differential with the rest of the crew. With the rest of the crew is the black guy on the ship, mm-hmm. and you have these white folks that are essentially like white collar jobs. They're scientists and navigators, yeah. and he's the guy that works in the plumbing of the ship and you know makes sure that things keep running, that they're not falling apart or exploding. And probably the most important member of the ship, to be honest, but he has some of the least power, him and Harry Dean Stanton, Brett, the two engineers. They they obviously have the least amount of power on the ship, despite probably being the most important to the ship's overall survival. Do you have anything else you want to say about the opening scene, or should we move on? We, we can... Oh, one other thing that I want to add on is throughout this entire scene, you see all of the characters that are having like one-on-one interactions and they're all kind of connecting. And most of the shots you'll see the entire crew kind of in the same frame or showing multiple crew members in the same shot, except for Ash, who is almost always shown individually. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so it's a, you get this feeling right from the beginning that Ash is, is there's just something off about that guy. Mm hmm. Yeah. What's the next scene that we're going to talk about? So the next thing, the next scene is they uh, get uh, is when they arrive on the planet and they find the space jockey. So um, what happens is they find out that they're they were pulled out of cryosleep and dropped near this planet because there was an SOS signal coming, and you know they have a directive to go investigate it, and so they're going to fly down to this planet check it out, see what's happening. Um, It's a little bit, you know, sketchy. They don't know what's on the planet or what it might be, but, you know, they they argue a little bit about whether they should even be doing this, and then Ash is like, well, you know, it's in our contract. We have to do it or we lose all of our money. So they decide to fly down to this ship and go and uh, investigate this SOS, uh, this uh, distress signal. And you have... Let's see. It is um, Tom Skerritt, who plays Dallas, uh, Veronica Cartwright, who plays Lambert, and John Hurt, who plays Kane, that go on this kind of away mission onto the surface of the ship and go to investigate. And they're going through these clouds that's, you know, and this fog that's really difficult to see everything before stumbling onto an alien spaceship. <laughs> There are a few just absolutely iconic scenes from this movie, and this is I think this is the first one that comes up where it's just like 
even if you haven't seen the movie, I think a lot of people will, will recognize. I had this experience when I watched it for the first time. I was like, oh, this is what that is from. Yeah, that, that big circular kind of ring ship that they see that pops up and is crashed and it's so big. <laughs> it's just uh, the shot that it has of this ship and it looks so different from the you know bulky mm-hmm. ship that we'd seen before. It's elegant and organic with this ring, but it has like this broken quality to it. And it just feels like a completely different, it is a completely different civilization, but it feels so different when you see that ship over the horizon and the, the characters also are just kind of in shock to see whatever, what this thing is. Yeah. I didn't even mean the ship. I meant the, um, the next shot where we see the, the alien corpse. Oh yes. Inside the ship. So they go into the ship and one of the things that they kind of were going for on the ship is they wanted it to feel like, like an ancient temple that you were discovering. So they make their way Mm -hmm. into the ship and the ship is so big and has this really kind of organic design to it where it feels like you're going through like the ribs of some kind of giant creature. And they make their way to the space jockey, the, the creature that's in this frequently called the space jockey by people that are like uh, fans of the franchise we don't know what the or at the time we didn't know what the name of the thing was so everybody just called it the space jockey because you gotta call it something (laughs) and they stumble on this massive just tremendous body that's that's dead and like kind of petrified and or mummified that's sitting in this console that seems to be the way to direct the ship. I don't know how to describe it exactly, but it's this tremendous body that they stumble onto. Yeah, and it is... It look, I mean, it looks great. This is where I assume the work of... H.R. Geiger. H.R. Uh, Geiger really comes into play because it is... it Like, if you don't get this right, then there's no movie. It's sort of like yeah. you have to get this visual correct here and then you have to get the visual of the actual alien correct at the end of the movie and if you if you don't stick the landing on those then the whole thing just is not going to work agreed agreed and um i find the design philosophy behind this so fascinating because hr geiger the way that he designed it was so that you have a creature that's obvious obviously a creature and looks somewhat humanoid but different but you can tell that it's a thing and then you have a machine but the boundary between them is unclear. It's hard to tell where the creature starts and the machine ends and the machine begins. And that's deliberately designed in. So you can't tell like what's bones and what's cords, what's structure, what's the seat that he's in and how much is it, how much is the creature, whatever this creature may be. It's just mm-hmm. great design. Yeah. Um, and then one of the things that they see on this is they see the ribs of this creature are broken outwards which is foreshadowing for what's going to be happening further on down the film. It, but it's such subtle foreshadowing. It's easy yeah. to just miss that that's what they're doing. But it's 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 such a great scene when they stumble on this thing. It's so mysterious. Yeah, and then we move. the They explore a little bit, and then they decide to explore a little further down into the cave and there is just this absolutely amazing shot i assume it just has to be a model where it is not a model it is a set it's not a model it is a set it's a set built that set where they're rappelling down the thing that is a set 
Oh my god, no wonder it looks so good. It is huge. It is huge. It's tremendous. When I saw that, I was watching, there is a show on Tubi that is about kind of like the behind the scenes stuff is that. And when they said it was a set, it just blew my mind. And they just made this huge set and had them rappel down into it. Wild. It's a, it's incredible. And the mist that's kind of uh, over the bottom of this thing. And again, it has this very organic feel. And one of the things that's in the design, the, the way that they built it, is so that it's hard for you to tell whether this is part of the ship or it's some cavern underneath of the ship, how much they're connected. Right, yeah. And so that's on purpose. And it, you feel like you're digging into this like ancient, just, again, like a temple or some kind of cave and we have no idea how long this has been here the creature is petrified up there like this could have been here like a million years just sitting here sending out some kind of signal into space that they don't even really understand some kind of sos that's going on it's around about this time that we kind of see some shots of ash back at the ship and you see uh, they're trying to piece together what this what the signal is and they discover that it's not an sos it is a warning signal to stay away mm-hmm. which you know adds a little bit of terror to this but then we get to one of the most iconic shots of the film which is john hurt rappelling down in here into the mist and stumbling onto these alien eggs and these rows and rows and rows of alien eggs in the bottom of this cavern Yep, and there's no... One of the things I was thinking about is, like, there's just no mystery as to what's going on here. Like, the movie's called Alien. It says it in the opening crawl. Everyone knows what we're building to, and so there's no subterfuge here. It's just, Mm -hmm. these are aliens. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where the terror for the rest of the movie is going to come from. Yes, and the, the shot of these eggs is just so iconic. And they, they look so weird. And there's like the moving thing when he shines the light on it. You can see there's something yeah, alive cool. in there. But it is a shape that is, it looks almost like a fetus but different. And it's just so creepy. And, you know, my family is screaming at the at the, uh, at the TV like, don't go near the egg. Get out of there. Get out, Get of, out there. of there. And he goes over that and it opens up and he's just kind of looking in. Um, and... Then the face, the face hugger jumps out. The thing whoosh, jumps onto his face. Your first really big jump scare of the film. Yeah, and there's something here that is just a nice little time trick, I think, where because the entire movie up to here has been so slow and so deliberate, there are a couple, there are two time jumps here. One is. From him, from when he's repelling, it jumps to him being down on the ground. And the other is right here when the face hugger jumps out and then it cuts and then there's no I don't I don't know if they did it on purpose. I don't know if they plotted it like this or if it was just something that they cut for time, but there's no worry about like getting him back to the ship or how do they get him out of here when he has a face face hugger on his face. It's just all of a sudden they're back at the ship. And I think this really adds to the unsettling feeling of the movie because just when you've sort of settled in to the slow pace and feeling how deliberate everything is going to be, it's just like, nope, all that stuff you thought we were going to make you do, we're not doing that. And we're just going to jump ahead 
yeah probably like 60 to 90 minutes yeah it's just boom 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 and they're back at the ship and they've got this guy that's dying and they're you know making this panicking situation or, or decisions about whether to let him on into the ship and this is another one of my favorite things from the entire film well it's the next scene that comes no it's not it's let me get into this one a little bit so this is ripley says not to open the ship and she's the mm-hmm. she is the senior officer on the ship because Kane and Dallas are w- both went away uh, away from the ship. So she's the one that's making the decision. And so you get the sense like, oh, she's in control. She's not going to let them in. She's going to let them die. And then somehow Ash, the science officer, is able to completely override her decision and open the ship without her permission and in direct in a direct uh, countermand of her order. Yeah. And this segues a little bit into the scene that I wanted to talk about, which is, um, do you have anything else to say about the space jockey ship before? No, we can go ahead and move on. Okay. Yeah. Because I wanted to talk a little bit about the scene. That's the confrontation between Ash and Ripley. And so this is after they, after they've done some initial tests on the face hugger and Ash Ash and Ripley have what is really feels like the first real scene of the movie. As you had said, there is the there was some conflict between them where they're talking about the SOS signal and they're talking about and then the scene where he overrides her order. But this was the first time that I felt like I finally got to latch on to a real conflict between characters. Yeah. And it was the first time it felt like oh, now we're in a normal movie. And one of the nice things about the structure of this film is that I feel like it's intentionally, it intentionally obfuscates for the beginning the normal hero's journey that we talk about for a movie. And I think it doesn't really become clear until this moment who the protagonist of the film is. And I meant to go back and look at some of the um, promotional material for the film, but I I didn't remember to before we started recording. Do you know if it was promoted that Ripley was the protagonist of the movie? Uh, No, it's the opposite. They they deliberately kept it secret, Mm. that you wouldn't know that she was the protagonist. Uh, If you were going in, and one of the things that they did is they deliberately wanted to cast someone who was unknown into the role um, so that no one would expect that that's the person that would survive. So they deliberately went and got for every other role in the film, they got someone that was an iconic actor that was known for something big. And then Mm, uh, for Ripley with Sigourney Weaver, she was the only one that wasn't. So you had Tom Skerritt was known for MASH. Uh, You have, Veronica Cartwright, I can't remember, but there was a TV show that she was in that was uh, very popular. Harry Dean Stanton was in a few things. John Hurt was a well-known actor, so was Ian Holm. Yafet Koto, uh, who plays Parker, was also in an, uh, a few iconic roles before this. And the only like unknown person is Sigourney Weaver in the, in the film. And she doesn't get top billing. Tom Skerritt gets top billing. Yeah. And, you know, they keep it a secret through the entire promotion, essentially. Yeah, so I think we're about halfway through the film, maybe 45 or 50 minutes in before it really starts becoming clear 
what's going on. And one of the things we've talked about the crossing of the threshold, Ripley doesn't do the crossing crossing of the threshold, and that really contributes to the feeling of like them being a joint protagonist before it's going to finally become clear that Ripley's the one who's going to take control. And I think she has a really nice progression through these scenes where she that initial scene where she's with where she's talking about the SOS beacon and you see her sort of figuring it out but she still is pretty submissive like she's just sort of suggesting ideas and she doesn't really take command yeah well and then she's third in command on the ship for one thing uh she's behind Mm -hmm. both Dallas and Kane Dallas being the captain and Kane being the executive officer and she's just the warrant officer. She's behind all of them in rank. And so it makes sense that she's kind of deferring to all of them. It's also clear that she's probably the youngest person on the crew. Everybody else has more experience than her. So it makes sense on this on this trip that she would be kind of deferring to other people's expertise. Yeah. And then you have a little bit higher than that is this section where she tries to enforce control of the ship and tries to say no, they, we can't let them in. And we see a little bit of heat from her, but really it's more exasperation that she eventually gets overridden. And I think there's something that feels very, felt very human to me about that moment where it's like, I could see her feeling like, I know this isn't correct and it's extremely frustrating, but it probably, like, we're probably not going to get punished for it, so hopefully it's okay, and we'll figure it out later. And then this moment is where it finally fully clicks in, where she and Ash really have, like, she yells at him, and they are, it's a really intense scene where she tries to make him see that the entire, the entire crew is at risk just so that he can do whatever these weird medical experiments are on this thing that they haven't ever seen before and have no idea what it is. Yeah, and you you start to get the sense that that Ash is definitely not on the up and up. And uh, when they have this moment, I I love when um, they're talking about how uh, he's the science officer and he's not supposed to have the authority Mm -hmm. to override this, but he does because he's involved with the company. Um, and the company kind of makes the decisions because they're writing the paychecks. Yeah, and it, it's not long after this. I think it might even be connected where she has the scene with, what's Tom Skerritt's character's name? Dallas. Dallas, where she's like, I don't trust him. How long have you known him? And that's when we first learn that there was a late replacement to the crew and Ash was was the late replacement. Ugh. Yeah. He's the he's the only one that nobody really knows. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. That was that was all I wanted to say about this confrontation scene. Do you have anything else you want to say, or should um, we the only thing that on? I wanted to add is there's this really it's one of the evocative scenes later when they have like their final confrontation when Ash is trying to kill her, um, and he tries to kill her in the strangest way. He rolls up a magazine and then tries to choke like choke oh, her to yeah. death. Yeah. And it's it's an it's a weird kind of strange scene, and the discussion of this one is that it's got a 
um, that the magazine is representing like a phallic symbol and that it's essentially mm. function is sort of like a rape scene. Mm. and it isn't clear how much that's what was intended by the filmmakers it seems like a little bit of that is deliberate but it is something that people kind of uh look at and it is a lens that people use when they're looking at that final fight between them yeah it i mean it is something that i thought about but i didn't have much i not the rape implications but how strange that method of trying to kill her was but it wasn't something that i really had time to dwell on because there was a big reveal coming in 60 seconds and <laughs> by the when that happened then i forgot all about the weird uh magazine choking yeah yeah and, the, and well the next thing that we see is we you know he dies is spurting fluid all over the place and then his head gets chopped off and his head still keeps moving on the floor. And they have this scene with uh, with Ian Holmes' head, like, sticking out of the floor and all the goop sticking off of it as he talks to them. And, you know, that is uh, one of those iconic shots that you just remember for a long time. The So the last scene that I wanted to talk about is this final scene in the escape pod. So this is after everyone is dead except for Ripley and the cat and... <laughs> You think she's safe, or ostensibly you're supposed to think she's safe because she's in the escape pod. And (laughs) she strips down to her cryosleep clothes, which uh, honestly are probably more revealing than uh, your cryosleep clothes probably have to be. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then... As she's getting ready to... I think she puts the cat down, right? She puts the cat into cryosleep. And then... She puts it there's into the its own chamber, but... And she closes yeah. that chamber, but I don't think she turns it on yet, if that makes sense. But yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we're not going to have to worry about the cat during this final, this final fight. And then the alien moves and... The, the, so there were a couple of things that I wanted to talk about for this scene. One of them is the acting that Sigourney Weaver does here is... I was so struck by how unbelievably good it is because she sees the alien and she quickly runs into the supply closet or whatever it is. And there is a look on her face that is just so clear so clearly dejected and exhausted because you it like I really felt like she had gone through the exhilaration and the relief and the disappointment of all of her friends are dead and then now it is just this moment of complete and utter despair because it's like I did everything (laughs) like I tried to do everything that I could and I was on this ship and I thought I was safe and now I'm just like 99% 99% gonna die or something like that and all of this goes through her face with no dialogue with not really even any silent actions she's just conveying it with her face and then in the same moment you also see her just decide you know what I think I think I can do this like I think yeah I have a shot and this is what I'm going to do. And so you see that transformation. Yeah. From complete dejection into resolve. And it, 
it's one of those things that if that doesn't work, if this scene doesn't work like that, this movie doesn't become the icon that it does and it doesn't become the the feminist icon that it is yeah it's a and it is all down to sigourney weaver's acting and the decisions that she's making and it's it's not dialogue it's all just physical and in her face and it's so subtle and because she's not moving quick through most of these scenes she's moving slowly and deliberately laurie and ethan were like you can't just stand there. What are you doing? You got to do something. Uh, and she's moving so slowly. And then they, she starts getting into the spacesuit, and they're like, what are you doing? You can't hide in that thing. It won't protect you. And then it dawns on them all of a sudden uh, what it is, uh, what it is that she's planning to do. And it's just subtle and slow. And it makes sense that it has to be subtle and slow because she's also trying not to do any like fast movements to alert the alien. Mm-hmm. And but you see, like you said, all of these emotions that are playing over her face as she's making these choices and gradually she's stepping from different stages of like being from despair into determination before she ends up making the decision, the the plan to deal with the alien. Yeah, it's so good. And I was shocked when I was reading about like about this scene that Ridley Scott wanted to end the movie with the alien biting her head off. And really? it was the studio. <laughs> yeah, the studio execs were the ones who said that no, she has to she has to survive. And I just could not help thinking like is this is this like the you know, so frequently you hear stories about the lone like artistic maverick standing up to the studio executives and uh saving the movie because the studio (laughs) executives who don't know anything about making movies wanted them to do something horribly dumb like i don't know cut somewhere over the rainbow or whatever the dumb things that yeah studio executives famously want them to do and i was like is this like the most famous or the the biggest time where studio executives like saved a movie and saved a franchise because it is just impossible to imagine this movie being anything other than just like a common slasher film if they had just ended it with her getting her head munched off yeah it's a yeah it, uh, the movie just is not it's it's nowhere near the icon that it is if if that's the decision that they make um and oh Wow, that that blows me away that Ridley Scott was planning on making that decision. It honestly doesn't surprise me that much because one of the things that's fascinating about this film is it's looked at as like a feminist icon. And Sigourney Weaver is kind of in a lot of ways creating a new role that women are able to play. And it's still referenced today, like to this date, as in like... When was it? Three years ago when Captain Marvel came out? Four years ago? People were making Mm -hmm. comparisons with Alien that had come out 40 years earlier and how Sigourney Weaver's character was like kind of the last big major step forward for female roles in science fiction and that you had not had anything showing up in that kind of same role since then. And... Well, Wonder Woman predated... Captain yes, Marvel, Wonder Woman right, came right. before that, but uh, I'm just talking about the commentary around uh, Captain Marvel. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. I think there's some flaws in the way that they were looking at that and interpreting that because you also have like, you know, Terminator and Sarah Connor and those kind of sure. yeah, all of that kind of stuff. But 
you know, it's this moment is so iconic and has stuck in people's memories. But Ridley Scott's other work is not particularly feminist at all. Like basically anything else he's ever done. I think he just stumbled on all of this by accident. Well, and I mean, it could have just been the because he wanted to wanted the subversion. Mm-hmm. And I think it's sort of you can see sort of similar things in Hitchcock's work, which we talked about for North by North by Northwest a little bit, where it's clear that that was not the goal. But in order to get the surprise, you give your your lady characters a little more skills yeah. and a little more agency. And it just so happened to click a little better for this film, I think. Yeah, yeah. That makes because sense. of the gestalt or whatever. Yeah. I did. S- I want to go back and correct myself a little bit. I said Ridley Scott's not known for a lot of particularly fem- feminist stuff, except Thelma and Louise, you know, which is a classic mm. icon. But... You know, now that you say that, I should have seen that coming because of the way that Thelma and Louise goes, which I don't want to spoil or anything like that. But that makes a little bit more sense in context. But yeah, other than that, the oeuvre, not particularly feminist. As you said, you kind of stumble onto a lot of things by accident. The role for Ripley was originally written as like, it could be a man or a woman, but it was like their idea was to cast a man into it. And they only chose Mm -hmm. to put a woman into it kind of after they'd filled out some of the other roles. And they were like, well, we need to have some, we could put some women on here. Nobody will expect that the girl will live. And, you know, that was the surprise angle that they were going for. Do you have anything else you want to say about this scene or should we move to uh, clean up? Let's go ahead and go to clean up. Yeah, because it does sort of segue into the opposite of what we talked about for Jurassic Park, where it has that trope that you so disliked of the black guy dying first. And this movie kind of does the exact opposite. It does. The last yeah. three people standing are the... The two women the and the black, black guy, yeah. And the two women, yeah. yeah. It, it is. I noticed that as I was going through. Now, the next film in this in the franchise, Aliens, that comes out, has one of the worst examples of a trope that's called Vasquez Always Dies, which is anytime you have like a butch-presenting woman character, they're often the person that's killed in the film. And so, mm-hmm. um, and it's named after Vasquez from that film. The the that's the trope namer. So you know, uh, one step forward, two steps back is is kind of how it goes sometimes. But yeah, it's a this one actually makes some makes some interesting choices there. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was cool. I have a question for you. So in I don't remember which death it is, but the one with the mechanic. I think it's the first one, Mm -hmm. the first death, where before he dies, he's, like, standing under the water that's falling. Yeah, the rain. On top of him. Yeah. The rain. Yeah. What's the implication there? Is the implication... Where's the rain coming from? Or is it supposed to be, like, alien drippings? I don't know. So this is one of the things they talked about on the making. And they they Uh were like why is there water coming down here? It makes no sense. And Ridley Scott was like, it looks cool. And that is your explanation. It looks cool. Uh, It's, you got a headcanon, anything that you might be like, I don't, the, the, what I always think is like, maybe there was ice like up in those engines and it's been like, like thawing and dripping down. That's the only thing I can think of. I really thought it was like 
the like the alien was dripping water and I thought that it is the, the first time I saw it as well. But then you see the alien is not like dripping with water in any other scene, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I was I was very confused about it. It's just that. a weird scene. It's one of those where they're like, Who cares? It looks cool. We're doing it. So so yeah, it goes. That makes sense. What do you have? What do you have for cleanup? So one of my favorite things in this end uh, end scene from this last watch was you have this moment where Ridley is or Ripley, sorry, Ripley is getting into the spacesuit, <laughs> and my daughter Addison was not. She didn't want to watch the film because it was scary. She was off doing something else, but she sense. like went to the bathroom and was coming back through in this scene, and she comes and she says, "Do you remember that really old movie Alien?" Um, <laughs> which is a callback. <laughs> To the movie Avengers Infinity War, where Peter Parker says, do you remember that really old movie Alien? And then they come up with the idea to punch a hole in the spaceship to suck the, the, the alien out into space. And at that moment, it clicked in everybody's minds, like Addison's mind, Ethan's mind, Laurie's mind, like, oh, they're trying to punch a hole in the ship to knock, to knock the alien out. And it just was hilarious to me, coming back to something with that kind of cultural knowledge, the way that impacts your viewing. I love that, yeah. Infinity War is just going to totally spoil the end of this movie for you. <laughs> right, exactly. It's great. So, yeah, so there's that one. What other things do you have for cleanup? So I have a question for you, the English teacher, uh-huh. which is when Ripley is sorting through the mother logs on the ship and she sees the thing that says that the goal is to ensure the return of the alien or ensure the return of the specimen. I forget exactly what it says, but it definitely says insure, I-N-S-U-R-E. And I'm pretty sure, I'm not an English teacher, but I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be ensure, E-N-S-U-R-E. Uh, that is correct. It is supposed to be ensure versus insure. Insure is like protecting against risk and uh, insure means to make certain. But this has been like a common grammatical mistake over centuries. Like it's uh, mm-hmm. people will write insure instead of ensure and they've been doing this for like 500 years. We see examples of these things to the point where it's considered as like a, 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 an error, but not like a major error to use insure to say that you want to make sure that something happens. And oftentimes it'll even be included as an alternative definition to that word. Okay, cool. So so the movie gets a pass, but it still took me out of it. Yeah, so. it's weird. It's, a, yeah. it's weird. I don't know. Maybe it's, a, it's a, so far in the future that at that point those two words have merged, which could definitely happen. I wouldn't be surprised if that happens with that word. Yeah, there we go. So the next thing that I found so awesome or weird about this film is Sigourney Weaver was kind of like their third choice for the for the part. <laughs> they originally cast Meryl Streep into the role. Oh my god! And this would have been Meryl Streep's like second big role. She was relatively unknown at the time period, and. Then Meryl Streep couldn't do it because her significant other passed away right before production. Oh, no. So they couldn't have her do it. So then they went to their second choice, which was Helen Mirren. Whoa. (laughs) And Helen Mirren had been in basically nothing at the time period. Like, basically an unknown. 
So then eventually they make their way over to Sigourney Weaver. And Sigourney Weaver, you know, they had some connections to. And uh, Meryl Streep knew Sigourney Weaver and, uh, you, you know, all of that. And they brought Sigourney Weaver into this role. But what I think is so amazing is these are, like, the three greatest actresses of their generation. I mean, and they just were yeah, all... Whoever was doing casting for this movie had an eye for talent. Uh, for sure, right? And so, you know... It's three just iconic, amazing actresses, all three of them it, just incredible in everything that they do. Meryl Streep, one of the greatest actors of all time. and But it would be so dramatically different with either of those two people. For one thing, Sigourney Weaver is like six inches taller than Meryl Streep. And I think eight inches oh, taller yeah, than Helen Mirren. Funny. So <laughs> it would have been a lot different. But I don't know. I just found that the, so fascinating. Yeah. The la- so the last thing I have for cleanup here is there's a moment where they're talking to Mother, and I think it's maybe Dallas who's talking to her, and they're trying to get, I think he's asking for, like, odds on chance of survival with the mm-hmm. alien. Am I remembering this scene correctly? You are, yes. Yeah, and... the. I felt, I felt like this was one of the only major missteps of the movie because I had to do a lot of catch-up here, and I could have just used a scene or two earlier, probably two instances earlier where we saw, like, the computing power of Mother, where Mother was able to, like, spit out things that we wouldn't otherwise know and we saw those computations happen because i really had to do a leap where i was like i think this is supposed to be scary that this that this is telling us this is a scenario that even mother is unable to computate the chances of survival here yeah i'm right with you on that one because i created like a false memory of her doing that earlier in the film and Mm, i was like where's where's the scene where she calculated the odds of whatever and it just doesn't show up um and yeah, so that's one of the few parts of the film I, I would have appreciated just a f- like, I don't know, three or four minutes of getting more information about Mother and also the relationship between Mother and Ash. But I think that's also hard to do without revealing. Without giving it away. Yeah, yeah without giving away Ash and all of that. So I don't know. Uh, but I agree. Like, it didn't fit so much with me that I created a false memory that she'd done it earlier. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So I have two more things. But one of them, one of the fascinating things I found out about this one is this is the film that is the most cited in scholarly journals out of any other mm. film. Interesting. Um, above even why. like The Godfather and things like that. So the majority of the – there's a lot of articles that are talking about, like, the cinematography, and there's a lot of things talking about, you know, the the way it depicts space and space travel. But the majority of the big articles about this are analyzing Alien from a feminist point of view um, mm, and yeah, from course. so many different angles. There are so many ideas and perspectives on Alien and the way that it – intersects with femininity and basically every character has been analyzed through this lens especially uh, ripley and the alien and the like 
lots of articles written about what the alien represents as far as like femininity and uh, the way that masculinity uh, often feels threatened by femininity and the ability to give birth and all of those kinds of things. So there's tons of articles about if you're looking for articles to read, this is the single movie that has the most of them that you can go find. Oh, that's cool. I, I remembered I actually have one other thing. Go for it. So we can we can continue switching off. So did you ever have a moment in any of your watchings of this movie where you were briefly taken out of it by just how quickly this alien grows? Yeah, yeah. Every time I watch it, I'm like, geez, that thing yeah. grows fast. Yeah. What's it eating? <laughs> like, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. It's It's weird. It's easy enough to explain away because it's like it's an alien. It can probably, you know, <laughs> who knows how they function. But it was definitely both times I watched it. I remember being like, wow, it seems like they just really wanted to have a big, scary alien. Yeah. And it's also something that's explained in other parts of the properties multiple different ways. And they're all unsatisfying. So, mm, yeah. Yeah. It's something that we are not the first person to think about and people have tried to <laughs> tried to, tried to retcon it to it yeah yeah and yeah. failed miserably at doing it okay yeah that makes sense i can't be the first person to have thought about this <laughs> so. well you know i'd say i'll give you credit for it so so the last thing that i want to say um the the face hugger and the face hugger design is so creepy um it probably oh, reminded it you so as the uh, of the dream crabs from from doctor who I don't know if you remember that one that has the one that has Santa in it. No, I don't remember this at all. Okay. Well, it's a very similar design and all of that, but regardless, it about like what was it a year ago in very like into the pandemic. I stopped by my local game store like from a distance when there wasn't people there all of this, uh, but I wanted to get some board games because I was locked in my house for 2 years. And I was like, I need some new board games to play. So mm-hmm. I, uh, they had just barely opened back up again. And one of the things that I saw they were selling was face hugger face masks. Um, oh yeah, like right. like for COVID. Oh, and, oh, I just, oh my gosh, I about died seeing it. I just, I was rolling from seeing this because I cannot imagine wearing that in public. But if somebody did, I would just be in awe. But also. It's so creepy and disturbing. Anyway, I, I found that really fascinating. Yeah, we didn't talk about any of those scenes. I mean, it's so hard when you're doing this. It's like we talked for 90 minutes, 120 minutes, and there's still so many things we didn't cover. But yeah, the yeah. face hugger is so affecting. Yes. And the um, we didn't even talk about the most famous scene where the thing bursts out of his chest. But, the chest burster. Yeah, from someone else. But both, I mean, both those scenes are, they do such a great job. All right, so that will do it for Alien. As always, if you want to send us any feedback, we would love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to shoot us an email, you can find us at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. The link is in the show notes. And we really would love to hear from you after this episode. It's a new episode structure. So let us know if you watched the movie before you started listening, or especially if you listened to the first half and then watched the movie and then listened to the back half. Let us know how that went for you. And if we gave too much information at the beginning, or if there's anything 
that you would like us to add in that beginning section that will help you make a decision about whether or not you want to watch the movie, we would love to be able to include that in the future. And then next week, we are going to be watching a movie that neither of us have seen. We're going to be going to 2013 and watching our first Coen Brothers film, Inside Lewin Davis. So we're I'm very excited for this one. I, I love the Coen Brothers, so very yeah, excited I do about too. this film. I, and it's, uh, yeah, every one of their movies is really unique, so it's always a treat to watch one for the first time. Yes, and I'm also excited because it stars my husband, so. That's know. true. Yes, yeah. I am, I am <laughs> so. excited about that for you. Yeah, very excited. All right. Do you have a closing question? Uh, I do. Um, so you remember the part earlier on in this film when you're seeing all the little, like, things that are throughout the spaceship that are from Earth? Ooh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so my question is, what would you take with you on an interstellar flight to, like, what would you have to have with you? And it has to be, a, like, a knickknack of some sort? Yeah, like some kind of thing that could fit on a spaceship. Um, you know, you wouldn't be able to have it with access to the internet or something like that because you're too far away. Uh, there's a bunch of things that we see that's like, you know, some little birds that are uh, pecking and um, there's like the, the coffee maker. And then there's the one scene where you see somebody's got a bunch of dirty pictures up on the wall and mm-hmm. things like that. So, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, so I would 100%... I have, I'm very weird and that I do not like to sleep with my head super elevated. So I don't use a regular pillow when I sleep. And for a long time, I had a polar bear pillow pet that was just like the perfect height for, for me to keep my head for sleeping. And then that pillow pet died and got old and grody. And now I have one from my third favorite movie of all time, I have Pua the Pig from Moana. So I'd probably bring Uh, Pua. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, that's a great answer. I love it. What about you? Yeah. You know, I think this one comes down. There's a few things that I would want to take. I'll give my short list real quick. One of them is my massive big copy of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Mm -hmm. That is one that I would, you know, uh, be interested in taking. Something like a blanket. Uh, I am a blanket person, and I love, you know, having a blanket. So I could see it being that. But what it comes down to for me is I got to have my dice. I'm going to bring a set of, you you know, a set of dice that I can use to play Dungeons & Dragons. And while we're on that interstellar flight, I'm forcing the people that are there (laughs) with me to play Dungeons & Dragons with me. Nice. I love it. Uh, my question for you is, I think for the first time in Stream It History, it's a question with a one-word answer. So there's a cat on this flight, and if you get to bring a cat on the flight, what are you naming that cat? I think that I'm naming that cat tabby just tabby tabby like a tabby cat yeah it's a good name yeah uh i i had the benefit of being able to think about this beforehand but i'm 100 percent naming that cat ripley because i know that then that cat will protect me that is a good answer yeah 
So I like your answer. It's a very good one. I do have to say um, my childhood cat growing up was Tabby. So that's probably why. And you know, that's the cat in the film is a Tabby cat, right? So That is true, yeah. Yeah, so that is why I went with that one. We had a Tabby cat that we just called Tabby. And I loved and adored that cat. It was an outside cat because we were all allergic. And it got eaten by coyotes. And so, oh no, you know, I know it's very sad. Um, it's a, we probably should not have had that cat and had it outside and all of that stuff. That was probably <laughs> irresponsible. I'm going to blame that on my parents, but I adored that cat and it was very sad. And I would love to have, you know, a cat that would remind me of that. All right. Well, with that happy story, we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.